Hey. <laughs> I love the grab bag of what greeting is Brandon going to go with this week. It's so much fun for me, and I have to stifle my laughter every time. Hey there. Welcome to Happy Tears! I'm Brandon. And I'm Nick, and this is Happy Tears, a podcast where two sensitive boys discuss the pop culture, meaning movies, TV, books, music, that we love so much so that we often cry like babies. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we discuss writer-director Lulu Wong's film, The Farewell, which tells the true story of when her grandmother was diagnosed with lung cancer and the family decided not to tell her. As well as the novel There There by Tommy Orange, which is a tale set in Oakland about the modern urban Native American experience. We've come to the part of the show <laughs> where we start and we talk about the things we've been watching listening to and consuming lately what you've been doing my friend well i have some music recommendations from the week hit me so the first one is by a guy named william tyler it's from nashville he is a finger picking guitar player and finger picking good i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't resist well, who's this person his name's William Tyler. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. He, he put out a really great record earlier this year, but he put out a, a pretty short EP with some solo acoustic material on there. And the first song on it is a cover of the famous Fleetwood Mac song, Go Your Own Way. Really? Yeah. Ambitious. And it is. But I do think it really captures the spirit of the song. Fleetwood Mac was a band in turmoil at that point. So he, he's playing this on acoustic uh, with like really resonant strings. When I listen to the song, I just envision like it's perfect for a movie scene. The very cinematic version of this song. It's only instrumental. And when you think of covers that can kind of play across a scene in a movie, I imagine that someone's got to get their hands on this. And I was uh, on my way to Happy Tears listening. You were going your own way? I was going my own way to the Happy Tear. Because you can go your own way. <laughs> You're allowed to. That should have been the song. You're allowed to go your own way. <laughs> you, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, song number two, Anna Wise. Do you know who that is? I've heard the name. Probably from some Kendrick collaboration she's had. Okay. She's been on several live performances, but she's also on These Walls, notably, and she's a Grammy award-winning artist now. So she has a new album coming out. The single is called Nerve. She has some production assistance from John Bapp and Nick Hakeem here, both awesome artists. It's kind of an upbeat song. It's propelled by this like continuous drum, her like driving drum beat. And she says it's about spring cleaning your relationships and not being afraid of letting go. Really like this song. And her new album, debut album, As If It Were Forever, releases on October 18th. So I will be checking that out. It also has some pretty awesome features on there, including Denzel Curry and Little Sims, two artists I love. So, Side note, have you listened to the You Can Go Your Own Way episode of song exploder yes it's very good very good this shouldn't be a side note we should mention that regular note <laughs> regular note. yeah it's i think it's one of my favorites it's good it's one of the biggest songs it's if not the biggest one that he's done what else you got i just have one more song that i wanted to talk about and it's another one in the uh the happy tears territory it's an australian band called morton and the song is called see yourself and it features irish singer james vincent mcmorrow who i love it's kind of got an 
angelic voice. But it's just a song that kind of explores relationship questions. And at the end, or near the end of the song, the lead singer of Morton and James Vincent McMorrow are both singing, Do You Still See Yourself Loving Me? kind of over and over again. It's pretty powerful. It's really just about, can we love each other at our best and at our worst sort of thing. It's a nice track. That sounds fun. Yeah. You should add those tracks to the new Happy Tears playlist. You bet I will. All right. It's on Spotify. Yep. We will get the link out there to you on our socials. It'll be on our website. Doing a new keep stuff. That, keep that list going strong. Yeah, baby. First baby. First real baby, because the <laughs> other one's definitely getting cut. Good. <laughs> they all should get cut. Maybe we'll cut that. Nick, tell me what you've been doing this week. Well, I caught up with an old album. Old albums are that good. That was a blind spot for me, and I'm really glad I did. Have you heard of this this kid named Jack White? I'm familiar. I think he's going to make it. I think he's going to be something someday. He um, just might. <laughs> so, confession time. I've never really listened to anything Jack White's ever done in any meaningful way. Listen to most of the singles from The White Stripes. I've heard a song by the Tours, and I've heard some of his solo stuff. Cool. But I've never done any deep dives. I've never once listened to an album beginning to end by Jack White. And I did that the other day. When I went to the Jack White page on Spotify, the first album that was on the list was White Blood Cells. Yep. And man, that album is awesome. It's great. From 2001. It's just so much fun. It's like brash and playful and just loud Mm -hmm. and garagey and dirty. The dirty guitar and the like banging drums. It's Mm -hmm. just, I don't know. I just like it. I had a blast listening to it. Yeah, man. A great example of the playfulness of it. Do you know that song, Little Room? Oh, yeah. I love that song. And it's so simple. Little Room. Yeah, and it's it's literally just a constant like yeah, drum a tap like like a like a metronome, right? Just yeah. this pff, 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 pff. but it's on like it's on like the hi-hat, so it's there's a metallic sound to mm-hmm. it, I guess. It's just so much fun. I want to read out loud these lyrics because the song is 50 seconds long and it's just there and gone, but it's so cool and kind of this fun little idea and I just want to read it real fast. When you're in your little room and you're working on something good, but if it's really good, you're going to need a bigger room. And when you're in your bigger room, you might not know what to do. You might have to think of how you got started sitting in your little room. That's it. <laughs> That's a song. But it's so much fun. That, that Me talking about it right now is longer than the song was. So maybe I should stop soon. <laughs> and I weep that 15-year-old me wasn't cool enough to realize how great this album was, even though it came out when I was 11. Doesn't, doesn't matter. I wouldn't have been that cool at 11. <laughs> yeah. You got to be fair to yourself. Yeah. Recently, I went through all of my CDs and transferred CDs to a case and got rid of all of those annoying plastic cases and realized that I own a lot of White Stripe CDs. Do you really? Yeah. I think they, they're they like at least in the top three bands for like most owned. Who are the other um, two? Do you know? I mean, brand new, it's up there. They only had so many albums. Though, <laughs> right, right. That's the, yeah. yeah definitely owned all of those. Deja and Tendu is in my top five albums of all time. And I know a lot of people like the next one. The Devil and God Are Raging Inside Me? Yeah. People maybe view that as the their most accomplished album, if you want to call it that, but right. I don't know. But uh, yeah, Deja's great. It's where it's at. Anyway, great band. You know why you like it, Nick? Tell me why. You like it because there's an astronaut on the cover. And I'm a super sad boy, but yes, you're right. <laughs> well, why don't you go back and look at your new CD booklet? All right. What is in the top three or what's your number one? I'm going to do it. And let's turn it to the listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Go back, find your CDs if you still have them. We know there are some CD hoarders out there for sure. Just let us know what uh, band or artist that you own the most CDs of. Let me think about my answer. Mine was probably Blink-182. Do bootlegs count? We'll let bootlegs count. Okay, then mine's probably (laughs) Blink-182. I didn't buy a lot of their albums, but I had on those, you know, you you buy like a pack of 80 CDs and you burn them all. Yeah, dude. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Only other thing I have, I caught up with a movie over the weekend that I have seen a couple of times and I just really like it and I just wanted my girlfriend to watch it and she wouldn't do it unless I just put it on and forced her to watch it, so I did. Um, Have you ever heard of a movie called The Way Way Back? I have. Have you seen it? I have seen it. I really, really like that movie. It's not groundbreaking in in the material, the story it's telling, right? Your stepdad or your mom's boyfriend's a jerk and you don't like him, and you're 14 and misunderstood. That's been done in movies. I just like the way they did it this time. Steve Carell being a dick is an interesting turn. Yeah. All the acting's really great. Allison Janney is a national treasure. And Sam Rockwell is just so good as this, like, older brother, friend, cool uncle character that kind of takes this kid, this main character kid, under his wing. And it's just kind of this pure little movie Anyone that's been young and shy and felt misunderstood, I think, would love this movie. And it's a comedy, and and it's kind of broad, and it's just fun. I just really like that movie. Well, Nick, I have something to propose to you. What's up? I was thinking about a scale, a happy tier scale. Highly interested. Continue. I'm thinking we go from creeping to weeping. (laughs) Creeping meaning. Yeah, yeah, say more more words. (laughs) Tell me more. Creeping being right at that moment when the water just starts creeping into your eyeball all the way to weeping. Okay, so if, if your scale is 1 to 10, yeah. creeping is a 1, weeping's a 10. Yep. I like it. I say creeping's a 2, like we, we don't have a 1. What I mean by that is if there's something before creeping, we don't have to acknowledge it because we're kind of always there. <laughs> we're always on the verge. <laughs> we're always a 1. We're so. primed. <laughs> so creeping's a 2. I accept that premise. Cool. <laughs> On the last episode of Happy Tears, we posed a question to our listeners. What is your favorite movie that's been adapted from a book? And we got some responses. Let's hear them, Nick. Hello, Sensitive Boys of the Happy Tears podcast. This is Alex Etheridge. Um, One of my favorite movies of all time is No Country for Old Men, um, which has been adapted um, from the book by Cormac McCarthy. I just love how dark it is, how Texas it is. I feel like it's very symbolic. I feel like I get something new from it every time I watch it, and I feel like I could watch it over and over again. And I do often. I think it's beautiful. Um, it's one of my favorites. So there. Uh, hey, it's Connor, longtime listener, first time caller. This was tough for me, but I think I'm gonna go with Holes, um, mainly because of the song "Dig It Up." Um, it's really hard to compete with that. But you know, Adam McKay's The Big Short is a close second. I love that he gives us that whole paradigm of stepbrothers all the way to The Big Short. But going back, holes. Sense and sensibility. I love the book, but Emma Thompson does an amazing job. Um, and I think she won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. My favorite book to movie adaptation is No Country for Old Men. Uh, not only was it just a perfect movie in every respect, but it's about as close to the book as I think a movie could ever get. My favorite 
book movie adaptation is Casino Royale because it is the first book of the Ian Clemens series that creates James Bond as we know him today, but also when the movie comes out is the first one with Daniel Craig, who is my favorite James Bond actor. A lot of love for No Country for Old Men, which is what you said, my friend. I do remember that. You also mentioned Inherent Vice. I did. Somebody on Instagram totally agreed with you. Other submissions, The Road. Another Cormac McCarthy book. It's great. The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. I do not know what that is, but apparently it's good. We should probably check it out. We should. And The Green Mile. All Instagram submissions. Thanks to Derek, Kyle, Gina, and Lance for submitting on Instagram. And thanks to Richard, Alex, Connor, Tess for sending audio submissions. You can always do that by going to happytearspod.com and clicking the voice message link. On to the next thing. All right, I believe it's time for the super brief news brief. Is it super? Very brief. I don't care. Let's change it every time. Incredibly brief news brief. It's just going to get longer, the, like the name <laughs> of it, and it won't be as brief. So you want me just roll through them real quick? Yeah, Brandon, hit us with the news. So Nick, you were familiar with the Dark Knight Returns series. Yes, comic book series. Love it. Well, it looks like there's a new one coming out called The Golden Child. And the last one was back in 2015. And this one, uh, Frank Miller returns with Raphael Grumpa to release another edition to the Dark Knight Returns series. Yeah, so I love Batman. Uh, I have more Batman comic books than any other comic book. There was a while when I would only buy Batman comics. And so the Dark Knight Returns series is considered some of the best of all time, not only in the superhero and Batman genre. Right but uh, across comic books. It's cool. kind of legendary. So, yeah, the first one was in 1986, the first run, and uh, it's become stuff of legend since. Cool. And uh, it's great, so I'm super... St- I haven't read the one from 2015, so I should get on that and then get on this new one. Yeah, well, you have till the beginning of December to do that, Nick. Excellent. Uh, next, we have Movie Pass. The service Movie Pass is uh, no longer. Goodbye. <laughs> we knew it was coming, but uh, this week they... Close the doors. So you had movie pass. I did have a movie pass. It was super cool for like a month. Right. <laughs> the original deal was essentially like 11 bucks a month and you could see a movie a day. Every couple of months, it, uh, clearly they weren't doing well because every yeah. couple of months they would change it to, uh, all right, you can only see certain screenings and then now it's only three movies a month. And, yeah. then, you know, it just they scaled back further and further. To. To where, um, you know, I got rid of it Yeah, pretty quickly. It seemed like it was too good to be true, kind of set up to fail. But it looks like it might open some things like this, some more services like this, or maybe, like, I know AMC started um, their own subscription service, but kind of could have paved the way for others. Yeah, and, and from what I understand, Alamo Drafthouse is toying with that idea also. So, cool. um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't understand the numbers behind any of that and right. how to make it profitable. I'm super into the idea. Obviously, we subscribe for all of our other entertainment pretty much now, so could, yeah. be, could be cool. Well, we also got news this week that the, the Watchmen uh, adaptation on uh, the HBO is doing yeah. is getting released October 20th. That's coming up pretty soon here. Yeah. And then His Dark Materials, uh, another adaptation uh, from a book, comes out November 4th on HBO as well, and I'm sure we'll cover both of those. And that's a series? Correct. Cool. Also, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood just got a sequel. Talking about the book, not the Hulu show. Right. So the show was adapted from the book, 
And this week was a pretty huge book release and a book called The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, which is the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Did you read The Handmaid's Tale? I have read it, yeah. Just within the past couple of years. Did you like it? I did, yeah. Was it worth adapting to a Hulu TV show? Yeah, for sure. Is it pretty similar? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, it goes past where the book did because there's multiple seasons of Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. yeah. I love the show, even though it is very difficult to watch because of how heavy and dark it is. Yeah, it's tough, but it's a pretty huge book release, and I know it's been a lot of people have been waiting on that. So, so you'll probably read that eventually. Yeah, I'd like to. Cool. That's it. Very brief news. Brief achieved. Could have been briefer. It can always be briefer. Cut it up. Chop it up. Man is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Do you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go night, we'll find out right away. So the first topic today is a little indie film called The Farewell, written and directed by Lulu Wong. And here is the summary from the A24 website. It is an A24 distributed film. In this funny, uplifting tale based on an actual lie, Chinese-born, U.S.-raised Billy, played by Aquafina, reluctantly returns to China to find that, although the whole family knows their beloved matriarch, Nai Nai, has been given mere weeks to live, everyone has decided not to tell Nai Nai herself. To assure her happiness, they gather under the joyful guise of an expedited wedding, uniting family members scattered among new homes abroad. As Billy navigates a minefield of family expectations and proprieties, she finds there's a lot to celebrate, a chance to rediscover the country she left as a child, her grandmother's wondrous spirit, and the ties that keep on binding even when so much goes unspoken. Would you like me to give you a little more background on this film and how it got made? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so Lulu Wong, this is a true story that actually happened in her real life. Her real-life grandmother was diagnosed with lung cancer. They decided not to tell her, and she was very conflicted about it. She is Chinese-American, born in China, raised in the U.S., and so her Western upbringing kind of clashed with her eastern roots that's a lot of what the film's about right right and so if my timeline is correct her grandmother was diagnosed in 2013 i first heard about the story in 2016 when lulu wong did a segment on npr's this american life i think at that point she had already been trying to get the film made for a couple of years i read an article in IndieWire that kind of chronicled her difficulties trying to get this film made because she really wanted to make the movie that she envisioned and most of the financiers that she talked to wanted to make changes. A lot of people wanted to whitewash it or change certain aspects of the story and she didn't want to compromise her creative vision. Right. And so uh, she went to several American distributors, financiers to try to get it made. She even went to China and tried to get it financed there and they told her, you need a white guy in it, <laughs> which is kind of yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's wild. But eventually she found the funding got it made. It was picked up by A24 after premiering it at one of the major festivals and is in theaters now. Although by the time this episode of the podcast goes out, it might not be in theaters anymore because we're a little late, but that's a little bit of the background. Cool. Well, uh, what are your general thoughts here? You've seen it twice now. I really love this movie. I think it might be my favorite movie of the year. 
I really love Aquafina's performance. I haven't seen a lot of her work. I wasn't able to see Crazy Rich Asians. It's a big blind spot for me, but I think she is just fantastic in this role. I think most of the Chinese actors do a wonderful job. I think the writing, I think it should win an Oscar for best screenplay. I think the writing is so funny and heartfelt. Yeah, it's and, a bit strikes great. a great balance there, I think. Yeah, I think the comedy element is wonderful. I've seen several Chinese films and one thing I thought was really cool about this one in particular is that it adds this element of like the film feels very contemporary, like there's plenty of art films or whatever that kind of have this cool and contemplative family dramas or things like that. But Aquafina's character, Billy, adds this really unique dynamic because she has these qualities that we're familiar with. She brings this really contemporary American side to this story, but she's also, you know, she has these conflicts within her own identity that I think are super interesting. And in this particular case, it's over one specific ritual that they have, but it's alluding to just a broader sense of someone, you know, struggling with tradition that has been in their family and in their culture and also what they've grown up with and around and how to deal with that themselves. We're confronted with a, a very tough issue and something that not only relates to news like that she has to deal with, but also telling anyone that we love something hard and whether we do that and experience the consequences of it or hold that in. Right. There's so much that's relatable in this film, despite the fact that it's about 70% in Chinese and, and subtitled, right? But so much of it is so familiar to, I think, how grandparents are, right? Right, right. You're, you're the, like, just the, the general nature of, like, I was reminded so much of my grandma watching this because my grandma's also this tiny little lady with short white hair <laughs> and small little things like how she gets so excited when her granddaughter shows up. She like likes talking about her grandchild's butt. <laughs> like like that reminds me of my childhood so much. Yeah. I always thought it was like a weird Italian thing. <laughs> but there's a moment at the end, this isn't a spoiler and it's not a big plot point, but she like makes her granddaughter take money from her. You know, like, yeah. like that's happened to me so many times where it's like, Grandpa, I don't need that $20. I promise I'm fine. But, you know, you just can't say no. So it's just Exactly. Like, yeah. Th those little moments are uh, definitely relatable in any family dynamic. It's It was just crazy to me that I saw so much of, of my family in this. Right. Yeah. So maybe a broader scope of the plot is Billy lives in New York, and when she's visiting her parents, she essentially finds out that her grandmother has been diagnosed with lung cancer. Her parents inform her that the family has decided not to tell her. Which is a, a tradition in Chinese culture. Yeah, it, it's, it turns out it's not that uncommon. Right. There's a great line in that scene when the mom says, Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. Not from the sickness, but from the fear. But it's the way they deliver that. It's, yeah. it's funny at first, and then it's kind of sad. And they do a really great job throughout the whole movie of really balancing, walking that tightrope of really funny and very touching and sad. Yeah. So the family has decided that Billy's cousin, who has a new girlfriend, is going to get married. <laughs> and they arrange this whole essentially fake wedding just as a guise for the whole family to get together and say goodbye to Nai Nai without letting Nai Nai know why they're all there. Right. And so at first, Billy isn't even 
allowed to go. She is the most against this idea and she's the most, she wants to tell her grandmother. Uh, so she's the most conflicted about this. Well, she might not be the most conflicted, but she is the most vocal. Is the most vocal about it. And uh, it seems like she's the most expressive about the, the conflict or whatever. So like these other people, even if they're conflicted, they've accepted this reality and are going through with it. And she does not have that easy of a decision process, I guess. Right. So since Billy is so conflicted about this decision not to tell her grandmother, the family decides that she shouldn't come to China. And so at first, her parents go off to be with the family and she stays in New York. Pretty quickly after that, though, she decides that she needs to come too. So she shows up in China. Everyone's surprised. Her grandmother's elated. And the story just goes from there, right? They start putting together this wedding and there's these weird... There's so much awkward family moments because it's so tense for all of the other characters. And then Nai Nai's there with a giant smile <laughs> on her face, just oh, so happy. Yeah, that's I love that part. So the, the balance of that tension is really great throughout the whole film. There's consistent like doctor's visits and them, you know, trying to withhold the news that is, is coming regarding her health. It just provides some pretty uh, funny moments of like trying to conceal something around others when everyone else knows sort of thing. We constantly find ourselves throughout the story, we kind of find ourselves bouncing back and forth between kind of funny, lighthearted, uh-oh, don't tell grandma this thing. Right. And then we are constantly coming back to Billy, who is struggling with this whole situation throughout the entire film. Yeah, it's weighing on her for sure. Yeah, another aspect I really liked is because of how they set this story up, you're in on this as well. So you know and are given insight into Nai Nai's health and kind of struggle along with Billy because we know that if something like that happened to, you know, one of our family members, it would be very tough thing to withhold from them. It's pointed out later in the film that in America, this would be illegal. <laughs> but just some really, really great interactions between Billy and her grandmother, especially her trying to, you know, do the grandmother thing of setting her up you know, or like trying to find a, a husband for her. Classic uh, grandma stuff, man. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, one thing I, I found particularly great was the just the f family dynamics the whole the whole way through here. So her interactions with her uncle and with her mom. And there's a particular scene when there's like an ensemble. It's like an ensemble scene and everyone is in it at this dinner table. You see some conflicts between people in the family over really just comparing themselves to each other. And it's just another common thing that I think we all do is, I mean, one, just compare ourselves to others, but also like in this situation, it's like who's doing the most right with their family or with their kids. They're living in different spaces. They're making different decisions on whether their kids are going to kind of the route their kids are going to take. I just think it was a really carefully crafted scene. The camera sits in the scene for a while. It never gets stale. I was able to connect with all the interactions in that in that scene. And these aren't Americans talking, but there's some troubled family dynamics that we can all relate to. But I was also engaged in learning about kind of things that I'd never thought about before, right? Like whether it's better that someone sets a path for their kid to come to the United States and maybe have be more successful and on a particular path or whatever. Yeah, there's conflict about comparing themselves, but it's presented as them arguing about whether America or China is better. That's the way the dialogue at least plays out, right? Right. And and Billy sits in the middle of of this of of having both parts contained within her, so it's poignant stuff. Uh, on a technical level, what were some highlights of the film for you? The score 
was beautiful. Mm -hmm. There was an aspect to it, especially the first song you hear right as the movie opens. It's got somewhat of an Eastern feel to it. There's just this kind of constant plucking of a string. A single female vocal comes in that's operatic and sad and regal. This weird balance of mourning and beautiful that sets a tone for this film really nicely. any particular shots that caught your attention or any uh, sequences? Yeah. The cinematography in general, one thing that was really great, there are a lot of shots with kind of a lot of headroom in the frame. Yeah. And headroom, for those that don't know, is the distance between the top of somebody's head and the top of what we're seeing in frame. Right. And I thought it was really great how they utilize this. It's almost like there's something looming over their heads the whole time that just like demands its own space in the frame. So this secret, right, Mm -hmm. this conflict that's in Billy's head and heart is given space in the shot. And I that's the way I read it. At least there's a moment kind of right towards the end where she's sitting talking to her grandmother right before they kind of part for uh, the last time in, in the story that we see. And it was really prevalent there and a couple other times throughout the film that I thought was really great. Another shot I really like is early on in the film. Billy's parents have gone to China to be with the family. Billy is still in New York. We see kind of a mini montage of her just living her life. She's at like a friend's birthday. She's on the subway in New York. And she's just kind of kind of in a daze. She's obviously upset and emotional, but she looks kind of numb, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's just going through the motions of her life. There's this shot where Billy's on the subway platform. There's this old woman on the other side of the train tracks. She looks just like her nine-nine. She's just kind of this old lady, white hair. She's kind of tiny. Mm-hmm. We're watching the old lady from Billy's perspective. And as the train goes by, you just see the image of the old woman just kind of flickering between the train cars. Like she's vanishing before our eyes. And that's really the motivation for Billy to go to China. That's the last kind of thing we see before she shows up there. Yeah. And I just thought it was a really great shot and a, a wonderful motivator for the story to move forward. The only other specific shot that I noted, there's this slow-mo shot of Billy front and center walking forward towards the camera. And her family is like flanking her, right? Yeah. They're, they're all walking down this alley or street in China. And it's in super slow-mo, and they're all just looking stoically forward. In the context of the story, it's after they have pulled off this fake wedding. Mm -hmm. And I got the sense that they were embodying, like, soldiers walking away from battle. Like, they emerged victorious and are just, you know, returning home after a job well done. Right. There was something very triumphant about it that I thought was really cool. And just badass looking. Oh, yeah, that was... A striking kind of sequence as well, for sure. Some of the things I I love just in general, um, I think the acting is great all around. I think that the pacing is really nice. This is a hundred minute film. Just does a, a great job at setting up the story. It never goes into a, a lull during the course of the film. And then, I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but I just think Lulu Wong does a great job of introducing these culture kind of conflicts and dynamics that I'm not accustomed to and does them in a way that I can still connect to them, 
while also learning a lot. She sets up these situations. I'm thinking one in particular of when Billy is talking to her uncle about this and it's like, she's been conflicted up to this point uh, and wants to tell Nai and her uncle kind of just explains to her, this is bigger than, than what we're feeling right now. This is our tradition to carry the weight of the, the burden of death so our grandma does not have to. When she's confronted with that, it's it's not like it just goes away from her, but I thought that whole scene was a really good way to add some perspective to what Billy was struggling with. Yeah, he actually says, in the West, you think your life belongs to yourself and you alone, but that's the difference between the East and the West. In the East, a person's life is part of a whole, a culture, a family. That's how he justifies that they are going to bear this burden, because they are part of a whole, whereas... In Western culture, we see ourselves as more individualistic. Yeah, I thought another great moment of kind of pointing out the differences between the East and the West in a both interesting and comedic way was how they talked about funerals in China and how in China, at a funeral, it is looked down upon if you are not beside yourself with grief wailing, screaming, crying out to that, like the heavens, right? Yeah. Billy's mom even says some people hire professional criers. And it's this interesting look, right? Like propriety and how you look is so important in this culture, right? Putting on a certain, a certain face. Yeah. Filling that role. Right. Well. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And they illustrate this when the family is at the grandfather's grave, because he died previously to this story, uh, and there's a funeral happening in the same graveyard, and they show the woman that's just beside herself. And it's both sad, because she, you gotta believe she's actually sad, mm-hmm. but it's funny because they already called it out right. for how over the top it is. One thing I liked about this movie, and I like about a lot of movies, it starts with... an opening title it fades up from black and it says based on an actual lie that's the first piece of information we are given right and i love that because it is clever it's a little fun Mm -hmm. and it's a little intriguing right what especially if you don't know this story what am i about to see now on to the uh to what everyone's been waiting for any parts in here bring you some some tears i got some happy tears my friend all right so it's pretty early Billy has gone to China. She's already gotten to see the family. The shock of her being there is is gone. And Nai Nai is outside doing these uh, kind of exercise rituals mm-hmm. where she like she's kind of punching the air and and shouting loudly. It's kind of like a chi uh, spiritual ritual Art. dance. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. It's just the most adorable scene where she tells Billy to like join in with her and Billy's like kind of half-assing it, doesn't care. She's like, "No, be serious." And they you just see them being so playful and joyous together. It's just so happy and cute and fun. I think it was more like my the tears were more creeping than weeping for sure. It was it was more like I think they just kind of my eyes just kind of welled up a little bit. Yeah. It was a good one. So funny fun and joyful for me the one i'm thinking of in particular her mom seems pretty closed the the whole movie and there's a a moment of her opening up it seems like she expresses something she has held in and and it's a moment of understanding i think for billy because she's wondering like this the whole time she's thinking like this is not fair how are you doing this mom and your mom's like you don't understand how 
how I've grown up and how I respond emotionally or things that are going on inside me that I just don't express. Right. So it's not, you're not the only one going through the hard time here as I kind of feel like that that scene contains. But yeah, it's just a really emotional scene and it seems like that there's a, a realization that Billy comes to in that scene that, that you haven't like seen from her so far. Right. It's the morning of the fake wedding. So it's Billy's cousin that's getting married to a Japanese woman that doesn't speak any Chinese. That's another thing I didn't mention that's very funny throughout is play, is inserting this girl who can't communicate with anybody into these situations, which was really funny. And who's getting married to this pretty naive, just a funny kid. Right, exactly. They're very young. It's great. But in the scene, Billy and her mom are continuing their dialogue. They're back and forth about whether or not to tell Nai-Nai. Billy makes the case that, you know, I used to know all these people very well, and then we moved to America, and that was so hard. I was six years old, and I was so scared at school and in the world, and then I came home, and all I saw was fear in your eyes, Mom, and it was so difficult for me. And then she describes when her grandfather passed away, it was a similar situation where he got ill, nobody told him, and then he was gone, and she she says that, when he died, nobody even told me he was sick, and then he was just gone, and we came back here, and he wasn't here, and he was just gone, and Aquafina's performance in this scene is just so great. She's just so desperately trying to make everyone else understand why this is so obvious to her and so hard for her. The interesting cultural thing is I think they do understand. It's just they've decided the route they're, you know, they've decided how to handle the situation. Yeah. But that moment was very moving to me in, in Aquafina's performance. Well, before we move on, this movie isn't super plot heavy in that there are crazy spoilers that I think will ruin the whole movie, but we are going to talk about the ending of the movie here, so I will do just a light spoiler warning. I don't know this would ruin your experience, so if you plan to see the movie and don't want to be spoiled, maybe maybe stop here or skip ahead to the next discussion, or you can stick with us right now for this. <laughs> yeah, so there's this the scene at the end when they're they've said their goodbyes and haven't told her anything yet. The camera is mounted in the the back of the car, so you're seeing her through the back window waving emphatically and with a big smile on her face and ah, uh, that one She's alone in the frame, right? Yeah. She's like in the center of the frame. This, And she, she keeps getting smaller and smaller, right, as the car pulls away. Very powerful. I wept like a baby, I'll be honest. <laughs> Straight weeping. Straight weeping. Yeah, man. Steady weeping. I have a, a question for you, Nick. What's up? Do you think that Nai-Nai knew the whole time that she had cancer? Oh, I never thought about that. And so I'm going to say no. Okay. I, I now what do you think about it? <laughs> okay, let me set this up for you. Okay, real quick. yeah, please. Based on her experience burying her own husband and assuming that they have participated in this tradition as well, it's not just a one generation thing, right? It's something we didn't necessarily explicitly say here. Was that Nine Nine made the same decision when her husband died years before to not tell him? Right. I don't know if we said that. So she's going through these, you know, normal checkups. Do you think? That there was any inkling because of her family being there and all of these things that she is putting on for the family, this not letting them get sad and having her be, not that she wasn't joyful in those moments, right? 
but like knowing not letting it affect her and does that change how you view the film at all it's an interesting question especially when you pose the idea that from what this movie tells us if you have bad news you bear the burden you don't put it on others right so if she knows i buy it that she wouldn't tell anybody right i get the argument there's a world where that could be real i don't know if i particularly buy it in this case just going with my I mean, guy. I don't think it affects the main message of the, the movie or anything like that. I just thought it could be interesting if that was the case because she would be having to do the same thing, withholding something from them as well. So Yeah, it's interesting. That's another interesting dynamic there if that's the case. And especially because she had to do the same thing for her, her husband. It's not like this unknown. Any issues with the film or any any negatives that you can think of? I don't know if I have one bad thing to say about this movie. I think there are a lot of great things about it that we've already mentioned. Yeah. The cinematography, the score is great, the cast, the acting, the pacing. I even struggle with subtitles sometimes and had no issues, even though this movie is 70% Chinese. Right. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know if there's anything I can explicitly mention. Do you have anything? Yeah. I have one thing I'm working through and I can't, I don't know if it's just me or what the deal was, but I it was in particularly Aquafina's performance, and it was just one thing about it. Like I thought she did a great job throughout, in some of the pivotal scenes of the movie, she's excellent. But I think in a general, as a general tone thing, and it could be a direction thing, or it could be her. But there was the whole like kind of slumpiness of her, and kind of like wearing this on her sleeves for so long around people who didn't notice that like it I don't know to me it seemed a little out of either out of character or just like an over characterization of something I don't know let me see if I understand what you're saying yep kind of the physical embodiment of the burden she's carrying correct the way she's kind of heavy in the shoulders slumped over and even just like some expression the expression of where she's clearly it's apparent that she's hiding something and that she's holding back these feelings and she has this weight on her shoulders the physicality of that seemed a little over-exaggerated for the duration of the movie for me to where it was like, did these people, the people around her didn't respond to that really in the film. That was the only thing that I've had a negative thought about in the whole the whole movie while watching. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't bump on that myself. I thought it rang true in that she is the type of person that would physically manifest some of those feelings in her body language and I think that her family maybe does notice it but to call it out they're already arguing about whether or not to tell her so her family around her being the opposite of that being kind of straight-laced and having excellent posture they're they're holding tight whereas she's crumbling under the weight and Maybe it is a little too literal. Maybe that's what I'm. Maybe that that's kind of what you're saying, right? It's maybe it's a little too on the nose. Yeah, I think it was like a little. Maybe it's at a, an eight, and a five would have been more believable for me, or something like that. It, it, Give me an eight every that's time, it. baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the only thing that I thought about looking back. But everything else, I I have thumbs up. Thumbs way up, my friend. The Farewell is now in theaters. It's in wide release, so check your local listings. If you're a fan of family comedies or dramas, this kind of walks the line of both, as well as if you are interested in learning about other cultures, this was a really interesting and eye-opening uh, and fun way to do that. 
She's dying. Can you be a little more sensitive? What do you want from me? To scream and cry like you? Ah! <laughs> All right, so now let's talk about There There by Tommy Orange. Let's do it. All right, so this is the description for the book jacket. There There is a relentlessly paced, multi-generational story about violence and recovery, memory and identity, and the beauty and despair woven into the history of a nation and its people. It tells a story of 12 characters, each of whom has private reasons for traveling to the big Oakland powwow. Jackie Redfeather is newly sober and trying to make it back to the family she left behind in shame. Dean Oxidine is pulling his life back together after his uncle's death and has come to work at the powwow to honor his uncle's memory. Opal Viola Victoria... <laughs> oh, that name. Opal Viola Victoria Bearshield has come to watch her nephew, Orville, who has taught himself traditional Indian dance through YouTube videos and has come to the powwow to dance in public for the first time. There will be a glorious communion and the spectacle of sacred tradition and pageantry. And there will be sacrifice and heroism and unspeakable loss. Pretty solid description there. It is a solid description of a very difficult to describe book because of the number of characters and different storylines that we get. Right. So the story is told from uh, the perspective of 12 different characters. And going into this, they each kind of get a chapter and then it's they start to interweave storylines. Yeah. So each of these characters have their own vices and are struggling mainly with identity, but also maybe struggling with different situations all born from the same systematic circumstances. Whether it's their own individual situations and family dynamics, but also kind of through the systematic way in which Native Americans have been oppressed and treated by the system and the country overall. Right. And a lot of this is their, or a lot of these stories, they're struggling with their own identity as well. These characters live in Oakland and they're urban natives is what they're described as. And so they have this unique experience where, and something that I've never really thought about, is that they have background and rich family tradition of Native American experience, but also live in in this city. And they're similar to Billy and the Farewell are kind of straddling this line of, you know, tradition and modern America. Right. Absolutely. Before we get any further, I do want to sort of caveat that it's been a little bit since we actually read this book. Yeah. We decided to read this together really before we decided to do a podcast. Right. This was actually kind of part of the motivation for us to start this thing. Totally. Right? And you were the one that suggested you made me read this book. <laughs> I did. I made you. It was great. I'm glad you did. So, yeah, it has been a while since we've gone over this material. We wanted to cover it because we had, after both reading it together, we had some good discussion and then thought that it would fit really well with the topics we were talking about with the farewell. Yeah. And I think because of that, we won't really dive too deep into plot or, or maybe the narrative things that are happening. I mostly wanted to talk about it because of the way it changed my perspective overall. Right, so right. kind of the broader terms. Same. And at least just give it that kind of coverage because as we move forward, who knows if we'll get a chance to talk about it again. For sure. So and we, I, just... I wanted to get it in now. Totally. And definitely want to just encourage other people to give it a shot as well. So we wanted to talk about it and share the impact that it had on us. So yeah, in terms of the impact it had on me as a straight white male that has a lot of privilege and doesn't have to consider things like this on a daily basis mm -hmm. because of the circumstances to which I was born, I learned so much from reading this book about the Native experience, about, yes, the history, but more importantly, the 
direct impact of history? I often think of Native Americans in a pretty monolithic way uh, based on what we've learned in school. And there's not a lot of a contemporary view in, in literature or in film or in things that we interact with on on a daily basis. So it's unique in that sense where this is kind of the first material I've interacted with that had that. From what I can tell, it seems like it's one of the more popular books that explores this experience of an urban Native American. For sure. Learning about the pain that an entire group of people have carried for hundreds of years and how it really affects them to this day was eye-opening because as somebody with just a public school education that doesn't give a well-rounded viewpoint of history, I tended to naively think about the genocide of a people as something that happened hundreds of years ago and is over and gone, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the ramifications of those actions are so deeply felt to this day. And now it seems so obvious that I should have known that, but really it, it took something like reading this book to give that rude awakening that I think is very important. And I think everyone should read this book, honestly. Yeah, I agree. I guess looking at the, the just the structure of the book and kind of bouncing in between stories, I do recommend reading this faster than than not just because you're you might get a little lost in the in the characters if you take too big of breaks in between this. For sure. I mean there's twelve characters that you're bouncing back and forth from different perspectives. Yeah. Even taking a couple days off, it was difficult to kind of jump right back in. Right. So it's kind of it starts kind of more broad, uh, setting the table giving you some background on these characters and then and then it kind of propels forward and you end up in some shorter chapters towards the end and the pace definitely picks up. But it's a unique style of starting with kind of a bunch of people and having this uh, cultural tradition of the powwow be the place where they all meet up because that's something that happens, right? And so uh, having that as kind of a plot tool I think was unique but also believable like occasionally i'll read something that's structured like this that it's like how do these people actually cross paths or whatever right and and this seemed believable to me because it it was a a real event and i think tommy orange does a good job of just giving each character some like distinct quality although we don't spend a ton of time with each of them you have some sort of distinctive quality to to tell them apart and and each has their own unique situation Although they often, you know, have some relatable struggles. Right. And they all end up in the same place at the end of the book, this powwow. Yeah. And they all have their different motivations for being there. And I, the way that he we weaves that the way. Yeah. The way that he weaves that together was was excellent. Yeah. And this is a debut novel from Tommy Orange. I'd say one character that I, you know, felt some connection to is the Dean Oxidine. He's trying to carry on the legacy of his uncle by capturing the powwow and events around it and getting uh, interviewing and getting the a full picture of the Native experience by capturing video of, of this. And it was kind of him taking on this project. And I thought that was a cool being on that, that journey with him. One character that was compelling to me was Jackie Redfeather. She is one of the few characters that you see, that you meet as a child and then come back to as an adult. And so her and her sister, you just get to spend a little more time with and you get this broader understanding of who they are because of seeing the different points in their life. And uh, her story was particularly compelling because she kind of runs away from her life in Oakland 
only to be brought back later by familial circumstances. But her story in particular, the way it weaves with a couple of other characters because of things from earlier in the novel, like a teen pregnancy and her sister's decisions to take care of her kids. Uh, yeah. It's just the way that Tommy Orange juggles these characters with such, it seems like such ease is really, really impressive. Yeah. Definitely showing uh, a lot of potential for in his future. So there's parts uh, of the book that I thought were pretty fun and engaging for me as well. Just what the characters talk about or like, I mean, Radiohead is mentioned in this book. Of course. You got so... your Radiohead fix. <laughs> MF Doom is mentioned in here. That's true. They give you a better picture of these characters and these really modern, these people in the city that are listening to current music or even underground hip hop as, as an uh, MF Doom. And it, it was an interesting way of bringing the reader into these people who might seem different from us, but they have, you know, parts of the American experience or whatever. For sure. The tone of this novel was particularly striking to me. Mm -hmm. I think Tommy Orange writes with so much... The way it read to me was there was so much pain and anger weaved into sometimes humor, sometimes, you know, a lot of different situations. Yes. So, I mean, we could talk about the, the opening of this book. The prologue to it is a pretty heavy-handed wake up and realize that this happened kind of prologue and it, it describes the massacre of Native Americans and then hops into this fictional tale with that context in mind. Right, yeah, he really sets the tone by really making you understand this is where these people come from, that their ancestors were slaughtered. The pain of such an atrocity will echo through generations of people. Right. And the number of characters that are addicts or suicidal or suffer from either mental health issues, or... yeah, is is staggering. And I wish I had the numbers on me, but from what I understand, this is pretty indicative of this community in general, that there are higher suicide rates for Native Americans as compared to the rest of, of the country. Yeah, he really holds back no punches at the uh, with that prologue there. And just a quick spoiler warning here, we're about to kind of discuss uh, the end of the novel. So you can skip a little bit ahead or you can be done for today. <laughs> but uh, another tearful moment was the, the end. The story ends in a, a massacre. So right as this powwow is getting ready to happen here, we have been following along with these 12 characters and uh, know that their backstories and know that some of them are connected um, even before this event happens. And it is, has not been exposed to the characters yet that these connections are there. So there's an excitement for the reader in this event, not only because it's the story has been leading up to it, but because you know that there's going to be some characters seeing each other and uh, making some discoveries that would impact their lives. The emotional roller coaster that you go through of that anticipation and excitement and then the tragedy that strikes is super impactful and pretty emotionally draining. So there was some happy tear possibilities, the possibility of these characters discovering 
a new part of themselves. And then it turned into sad tears of not seeing those positive things in their lives being fulfilled. Right. And the way that this ends, it, it, it's in tragedy. Right. And it's even amplified by the way that the author picks up the pace, right? The chapters get, get shorter, three or four pages each, right. as opposed to 15, 20, 30 throughout the earlier Correct. parts of the novel. So the roller coaster of events, you're just going up and down so quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's really, really well paced and, and well written. So I did read in. Um, Tommy Orange had an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's uh, this exercise on Reddit where the someone, it could be anyone, it could be someone that's not famous or a celebrity or someone who just has experience in a field right? who just says, hi, I'm this person, ask me anything. And you get a big thread of comments and this person responds to whichever ones uh, they want to respond to or as many as they can at the time they're given or whatever. So he did one and plenty of people had questions of the ending because it is pretty abrupt and you want to know what happens to these characters. Some of them have already died off and he does plan a sequel for this, which is really interesting and I didn't know that until yesterday. This is news to me too. (laughs) That's very exciting. Yeah, so we will see some more of some of these characters and probably some some effects uh, some of the events that happened in the in the, at the end of the book you know this powwow is supposed to be a, a sacred thing for the community and for this to happen um has to take a huge toll on the people of Oakland like people from different tribes come to this and participate in uh these you know rituals and and so I'm looking forward to continuing the story when you and I discussed The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, you mentioned that it's one of your favorite experiences reading a novel. Right. I think I had that sort of reaction to this book, less in a fun and exciting way, kind right. of like Cavalier and Clay, but more that I learned a lot from this book. And I know that I've read some interviews and, and watched some videos of Tommy Orange, and I know that he mostly wrote this for the people in his community. I recognize that this book wasn't written with the intent, wasn't written for me, but I took a lot from it and it really changed my outlook on a lot of things that I was just ignorant to. And so um, in terms of changing a viewpoint, this was very meaningful to me. Good to hear. It's been so long that I don't really remember any specific points of happy tears for me. Do you have any specifics? I remember points... Uh, definitely in the writing that I just thought things were written really beautifully and, and went back and read them again, got emotional there. There's a particular passage of a chapter titled Thomas Frank, who's one of the characters. Fun fact, Thomas Frank Orange is the legal name of the author of this book. So that character is, is loosely based on his right, own Right, the life. one that most resembles him. Yeah. So it says, before you were born... You were a head and a tail in a milky pool, a swimmer. You were a race, a dying off, a breaking through, an arrival. Before you were born, you were an egg in your mom who was an egg in her mom. Before you were born, you were a nested Russian grandmother doll of possibility in your mom's ovaries. You were two halves of a thousand different kinds of possibilities, a million heads or tails, flip shine on a spun coin. Before you were born, you were the idea to make it to California for gold or bust. You were white, you were brown, you were red. You were dust. 
I remember that passage and I really love it. I think that's wonderfully poetic and really reminds me of something that should be familiar to listeners, the idea that everything is stardust. Yes. Go listen to episode one if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that passage, actually, I was watching a uh, a video on YouTube of Tommy Orange at a book tour stop, okay. and he read that passage. So wow. clearly, he likes it too. He does. So this is a Pulitzer Prize finalist. You can find it in bookstores everywhere. And like The Farewell, I definitely recommend this to anyone who wants a look into someone else's experience, particularly of the experience of Native Americans in modern America. <laughs> I've got one last question for you, Nick. Oh, tell me that one last question. Who has your favorite name with the color in it? In real life? In real life. That is a great question. I'm just going to rattle off a few and then maybe pick one of them. Okay. First, Jack Black. Second, Jack White. <laughs> Which one is not a color, though? Black contains all, all colors. And white is the absence. Is the absence of color. So Jack White, you're gone. <laughs> you gone. <laughs> you got to say Jack White. You started this with Jack White. I know, right? That would just be the most perfect. Do you have yours already? I mean, Tommy Orange is a good name. Tommy Orange is a great name. Yeah, I don't know if he's my favorite, but just to bring it full circle, I'm going to say Jack White because I talked about him at the top of this podcast, and it seems wrong not to. <laughs> I like Jack Black more than Jack White, but I'm going to stick to my guns with Jack White for <laughs> the bookends. That's a good one. Fun fact, they recently made a song together. They did. Is it out? It's, I haven't heard it. There's like bits and pieces of video. I don't think it's actually of the song. I, the, he, he did a whole like, not vlog, but like recap video of their time together and all this stuff. Yeah. Everyone's been waiting for that to happen forever. Right. And it has happened, and we're we're you know anticipating the yep the drop of this. What about you? You probably were thinking this, but I'm gonna go with Blue Ivy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. You can find more information as well as this episode's show notes at happytearspod.com. You can follow us on Instagram at happytearspodcast. And we want to hear from you. Our current question is, think back to when you owned CDs, maybe the mid to late 90s or the early 2000s. Or if you're like Brandon, now, what artists did you or do you own the most physical CDs of? Give us your answer at Happy Tears Podcast on Instagram or at happytearspod.com. There you can let us know what you'd like us to cover on the podcast, as well as letting us know when you have happy tears. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite artist? What's your favorite thing that's happened in space in the last 40 years? Nick really cares. I don't know about Brandon. Also check out the new Happy Tears Mixtape Spotify playlist, which includes all music that's been reviewed on the podcast, as well as our weekly recommendations. Our original theme music is by Homage, youtube.com slash homagebeats. And finally, on the next episode, we review two brand new albums. First, Mirrorland, the new album by the Atlanta-based rap duo Earthgang, as well as Little Ghost, the new album by alt-R&B, neo-soul, jazz group Moonchild. That's all for this week. On behalf of Brandon and myself, I'm Nick. Farewell!